What does motion sound like? With Kizikans free shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizikcom socks. Hey listeners, thanks for dropping in. I'm Christy. And I'm Melissa. And this is Buried Motives, where we dig deep into the details of some of the most gruesome dirtbag murderers. Thanks for joining us for another episode. Melissa has got a really good one for today. Oh, I'm excited about this one today. And I think it's a good break from all the kids that we've been covering. Yeah, it's been pretty heavy and dark. So this one will be a a refresher. A refresher. (laughs) Not a refresher. We're going to cover like 40 murderers, but it's going to be a refresher. That's the word that I'm... Like a breath of fresh air compared to the things that we have been talking about lately. It will be a little bit easier to talk about, I think. This one was definitely easier to research. (laughs) Definitely. So today we're going to talk about the notorious Black Widow, Belle Gunness. It's believed that she killed up to 40 men, women, and children between 1884 and 1908. She was the original Craigslist killer, luring in men through personal ads and the promise of a love connection, only to kill them and feed them to her pigs. Right after she took their money, of course. Well, you have to have your priorities straight. If you're going to kill someone, you might as well take their money. Right. You might as well profit from it. A criminal anthropologist and a forensic psychologist both remarked on Belle's absence of empathy, with an emphasis on her apparent ability to overcome natural feminine feelings. She had a super intelligence for doing evil, making her more terrible than any male criminal. That's scary. And I do find that female serial killers are so fascinating. Because I find for myself, and maybe for our listeners too, that we seem to automatically picture a man, not a woman, when we hear the phrase serial killer. Oh, totally. And their motives are usually a lot different. They usually go after power and financial gain, where men usually are motivated by their sexual perversities. Oh, I can totally see that. Yeah. Female serial killers almost always know their victims, usually choosing people that they're close to, and they are very good at playing the long game. They spend their time collecting their victims as opposed to the hunt for victims, which is usually associated with the male serial killer. And maybe because they play the long game, they're less likely to act out without first planning or preparing for their crimes. They're often operating for longer periods of time than male serial killers, and we'll see that here today with Belle. Oh, I believe it. We're patient. We'll just wait you out. (laughs) There are researchers that say that these differences are due to evolutionary biology, based on the fact that women have less reproductive potential and men have more. Historically, men were given the role of hunters while women were gatherers, which I find so fascinating. That really is fascinating. Sounds like Belle is your classic black widow. Oh, yeah. I don't know if people have heard that term before with female serial killers, but it basically means that they kill like three or more husbands or lovers for the financial gain under the pretense of love. Yeah, Belle definitely did that. Yeah, she's definitely a black widow. One of the most interesting things about Belle is how her story ends. She was never tried for any of her crimes, and it's believed by most modern day investigators that she staged her own death and disappeared into the night. Ooh, yeah, this is going to get juicy. 
And even though these crimes took place over a century ago, she still ranks among the most prolific murders in the Guinness Book of World Records. Really? Well, especially if it, her victim count was 42 yeah, that she was doing was this. Just insane. So there's several books and even poems written about Belle, and I thought it'd be fun to share this little ditty about her. Belle Guinness was a lady fair in Indiana State. She weighed about 300 pounds, and that is quite some weight. That she was stronger than a man, her neighbors all did own. She butchered hogs right easily and did it all alone. But hogs were just a sideline she indulged in now and then. Her favorite occupation was the butchering of men. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> to keep her cleaver busy, Belle would run an ad, and men would come a-scurrying with all the cash they had. Now some say Belle killed only ten, and some say forty-two. It was hard to tell exactly, but there were quite a few. And where Belle is now, no one knows, but my advice is fair. If a widow advertises for a man with cash, beware. Uh, yeah, could you imagine that being, like, your Craigslist? <laughs> man with cash? That's pretty much what she does. <laughs> All right, so Belle Guinness was born as Brunhild, Paul's daughter, Storsa, in Norway on November 11th, 1859. Now, Belle would be known by a few different names throughout her life, but to keep it simple, I'm just going to keep calling her Belle. So is this a nickname? Uh, well, she actually changes her name several times. Oh, okay. Yeah, And at very opportune times. Oh, to skirt the police or the authorities? Well, I don't know. She didn't change it that or... much. Oh. So I don't think it's like actually to skirt authorities, but I think it may be to reinvent her image among people that weren't looking on her so favorably. Interesting. Yeah. I'm just going to go forward calling her Belle. Okay. Because I think it gets confusing if you start And that's how she's most widely names. known is by Belle. Yeah. Not much is known about her early life, and that's not surprising given the time period. It lacked the digital footprint of today. Right. Her parents were Paul Pedersen, Sorset, and Barrett Ulstadter. She was the youngest of a large family, so they had about seven to eight kids. It was believed that they lived at Storsudre in a very small cotter's farm in Ibigda in central Norway. There are different reports on how her family made a living. Generally, it's believed that her father was a stonemason and farmed. Although there are some really scattered reports that her family was moonlighting as circus performers and Belle would actually make appearances as a tightrope walker. That's incredible if that's true. But yeah. I'm wondering, how do you go from being in the circus with your family to... Stuff and sausage and killing men. Yeah, I don't know. It is quite the jump. And I wonder if it's one of those one-off times where they thought it would be fun to do to take part. And then gradually the rumor got to be that they actually were moonlighting as circus performers. Where in actuality, maybe they just went to the circus That's one right. time. <laughs> These reports are from a long time ago. And That's you know that true. broken telephone line of, it probably changed quite frequently right. over time. Or maybe a neighbor called them a clown. Yeah. <laughs> Right. And all of a like, sudden, yeah. they're circus performers. <laughs> yeah. That That's could how totally I feel. Be I have that case. vibe for this. Yeah. So in June 1874, and this is actually documented, so we know this happened, during her confirmation at age 14, her religious instructor evaluated her as good in religious knowledge and diligence, a ranking that about only half the girls obtained at that time. And that same year, she was hired out as a dairymaid to a neighbor who described her as a diligent human being that in all ways behaved well. Okay, so 14, she's still on the right track. Yeah, 14 seems like she's pretty good. We'll have to see where this all goes. She was described quite differently when the newspapers interviewed people in her hometown after the bodies were found in the hog pens. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. Hindsight, right? That's right. So locals in her hometown would then remember her as a very bad human being. <laughs> extremely malicious. She had unpretty habits, always in the mood for dirty tricks, talked little, 
and was a liar already as a child. That's wild. As a grown-up, she was still little respected and the scum of society. If you're killing women and children and men, you're dirtbag scum. Sorry, Belle. Yeah, that's true. It had true. to be said. But keep in mind that these statements were made after the fact by individuals that hadn't seen Belle in almost 30 years. You They're gotta... just embellishing and trying to get yeah. their moment of fame. I think so. The actual documented records of her character actually seem pretty decent at a young age anyway. It does seem correct, though, that her family was poverty stricken, which might have been the reason why she had little respect and was considered a member of lower society. And that poverty, and I'm just speculating here, plays a very influential role in Belle's adult years because of her constant want to accumulate more and more wealth. Oh, that makes sense to me. Yeah. So I thought, oh, that actually will play into yeah. to her personality later. My mind went to Gone with the Wind, you know, where she's like, I'll never go <laughs> hungry again. Yeah. Isn't that the line? Yeah. Yeah. So that would be her driving force. Totally makes sense. Yeah. There is a circulating story about Belle that at the age of 17, she had been impregnated by a wealthy man. And while attending a barn dance in 1977, she was lured by him into a secluded area and was brutally beaten to the point that oh. she miscarried the baby. Oh. And it was also he didn't have to marry her. What a scum. Yeah. He's a dirtbag. This was, again, one of those circulating stories that I really couldn't find the origin to. But it is reported by several other citations. It sounds plausible for that time. And if it was true, it might have given some insight into why Belle does the things that she does later on. We'll get into them eventually, or we'll go into those details, but it might explain why the attachments and even the maternal bonds that she did make with her immediate family and those around her were so easily severed when she could gain from them. Oh, I could totally see that. Because she probably was in love with this rich man, right? At 17, she's probably got hearts in her eyes. And then yeah. for him to turn around and just see actually what she meant to him. Might also explain her obsession to become a mother and the reason that she suffered from infertility. So while we don't know if this is a true account of an experience that she had, it does make sense with some of Belle's psyche later on. Okay. So after the beating, Belle took a job working as a servant at a large prosperous farm. Belle had grown up poor and was no stranger to hard work. And for several years, she worked there before her sister Nellie would pay her passage to come to America to be with her. In 1881, at the age of 22, Belle realized her dream of coming to America. And this was the first time she changed her name from Brunhild to Bella to Americanize it. That yeah. makes sense. She lived with her sister while she established herself. And it was during that time that her sister Nellie would say that she realized how much Belle's lust for wealth consumed her, saying that my sister was insane on the subject of money. She would do anything to get it. Oh, no. That's eek, never good. Eek, it's eek. good to have some drive, but... <laughs> there Laser focus. Yeah, there's some boundaries. While living and working as a servant in Chicago, she met Mad Sorensen, a fellow Norwegian. The two were married in 1884, and there's little known about their first 12 years of their marriage. Oh, so they stay married for a while. Yeah, they do. Reports from Belle's sister, Nellie, say that it was during this period that Belle was obsessed with having children, but unfortunately seemed unable to become pregnant. She would spend her time watching and caring for other people's children and offering to take in orphaned or abandoned children. At children's picnics, she would actually make announcements about wanting to take in children. Really? Yeah. Could you imagine how freaky that would be now? Like you're playing at the park with your kids and someone walks up <laughs> to the park and is like, just so everybody knows. <laughs> If you don't want your kids, I'll take them home. In the actual quote um, that her sister gives after everything's found out, she said that she would stand on a platform at the park. Oh, wow. And make announcements that she would take any unwanted children. <laughs> Was that a thing then? People are like, oh, wait, I got one. I got one over here you <laughs> yes. can take. Well, it actually was a thing back then. So they really? called them baby farms. 
And if you didn't want a child or you couldn't care for a child, then you could give people your child and for a certain amount of fee, they would either care for them for a month or a certain length of time or they keep them indefinitely depending on how much you paid them. So it's actually a way to make money as well. Okay. But that's like an establishment, right? That you would go to with your child if you're wanting to or... No, no. So it was underground. That's wild. So it wasn't actually a really unusual practice for the time. Okay. Especially if you've got this woman that can't have children of her own and desperately wants to. It would be this obsession over children that would eventually lead to a falling out with her sister when Belle wanted to adopt one of her sister's five children, a little girl whom she'd become particularly attached to. But her (laughs) sister was like, uh, no, that's my child. I love you, but you can't have one of my kids. Yeah, you can't fault her for that. So over this, Belle severs ties with her and really doesn't speak to her again. So that's telling us like where Belle's mindset is at. It sounds like she let Belle take her, her little girl, Olga, for a certain amount of length of time. And then when she went to go collect her, like she had to physically go and collect her. Like Belle wouldn't bring her to the door or wouldn't bring her to That's her. That's crazy. Yeah, I could see how that would sever things. In 1891, Belle realized her dream of becoming a mother when a family friend with an eight-month-old realized that she was dying. According to the grief-stricken father's account, Belle begged the woman to give the child to her. And the mother agreed, making her swear that she would guard the little one as if her own. Rearing and caring for her, Belle swore that she would regard the pledge as sacred. Oh, and I have a feeling that's not what she does. The infant's father would later recount that he saw the child quite frequently with Belle and that she did always appear well cared for. But when he remarried and wanted to take his daughter back, Belle was actually granted custody over the biological father. Yeah, but if she's, like, at what age was this? Because if she's been the primary caregiver... And it was a few years baby, later. Yeah, I mean, that's why we have laws about, you know, once that adoption is final, you can't change your mind. It is better for the child for to stay with their caregiver. Yeah, maybe not with Maybe Belle. not with Belle, but yeah. A government census would show that between March 1896 and December 1898, that Belle and Mads would become parents to four more children, Carolyn, Myrtle, Axel, and Lucy. One of these biological children, like she got pregnant? So it's still debated today whether these children are biological or if the couple had just taken them in. Okay. It seems unlikely that Belle, after years of not being able to get pregnant, would all of a sudden be able to pop out four kids in a two-year time period. Yeah, I don't think so. Yeah, it Our fertility goes down, too, the older we get. Yeah. It's possible, just not likely. No. It's probably more plausible that these children were taken in by the couple, probably for money. Again, we go back to that baby farming practice in this time period. It is known that two of the children died in infancy, Caroline at five months old from acute inflammation of the bowel, and Axel at three months old from water on the brain. There are some reports that both of these children's lives were insured by Mads and Belle, really? and that the policies paid out. But they were natural deaths. Well, or- Listed as natural death. During this time, it wasn't uncommon for infants to die. And both of those deaths are reasons that infants could die. But Bella's future actions do cause some suspicion over the circumstances of these two infants' deaths. Okay. Throughout the rest of their married life, it would seem, the couple would have a continuous run of bad luck, but it always seemed to work out in their favor at least financially. In 1896, the candy store that the couple had purchased two years earlier burned down when only Belle and Jenny, the little girl that they had taken in were present. Belle claimed that a glass lantern had fallen and broken. During the investigation, no signs of a broken lantern were ever found. Oh. The insurance company did pay out a significant sum of money, and it was with that money that they purchased the couple's first home. Oh my. Get out. (laughs) 
<laughs> we know. Wait, wait for it. In October 1897, Mads was offered a job with a mining company to go and dig for gold in the Yukon. This offer was exciting to Belle because it meant that he would be making significantly more money than his night watchman job. And she wasn't too concerned that it would take him away from home for long periods of time. Oh, I'm sure all she heard was the word gold. And she was like, here, I'll pack you a lunch, honey. See ya. See you later. The couple did have to invest a sum of money that was equivalent to about $20,000 in today's funds. What? Yeah. For him to go do this? Yeah. But the money seemed worth it because of the promise of the huge payout from the job. So is this a get rich scheme? They leveraged their house no. for the investment money. Oh no. You got it. And excitedly prepared for the new job. When Mads didn't hear back from the company, the couple raised their concerns to the police and found out that their easy money deal really was too good to be true. It's always too good to be true. This really ticked Belle off. Oh, I can only imagine. Yeah, she was not happy about it. And she actually took the company to court. I believe it. This is sounding like Belle. She is yeah. a force to be reckoned with. Archived court documents show that the couple fought to keep their investment money from being cashed. And they were able to save their home. So oh. you don't mess with Belle's purse strings. No. Unless you want to be turned into sausage. <laughs> <laughs> okay. On Tuesday, April 10th, a defective heating unit in their new home caused another fire. Luckily, the fire department arrived to time to save the building. But the insurance claims would reveal that the couple had suffered a loss of approximately $650 worth of household goods. So today, around... $20,000. Oh, how convenient. Yeah. On July 30th, 1900, Mad Sorensen returned from his night shift and complained about a headache. Belle, the diligent and caring wife, cared for her husband by giving him some quinine powder and sent him off to bed to rest. Later, she went to check on him and she found him lying on the bed, fully clothed, stone cold dead. <laughs> I knew this was going to happen. Well, we knew because she's a black widow that she had to kill her husband. Oh, yeah. Right? That's know a given. Coming. When two doctors responded to Belle's frantic calls, they were unable to help. The two disagreed in their opinion of what had happened to Mads. The first doctor to respond had originally thought that the pharmacist had given Belle the wrong medication, and Mads had mistakenly been given an overdose of morphine that had stopped his breathing. He had asked to see the medication's package to confirm it, but Belle had already thrown out the medication package. And not just in the garbage can, like she threw it out where? You can't retrieve that. Yeah, it was. She probably burned it. <laughs> It was thrown out, never to be seen again. I wonder if she was just like, after the whole ordeal with the gold and the $20,000, just like, you're more trouble than you're worth. Next. Well, and this isn't after a couple of years of marriage. They've been married for quite a, a while. And then all of a sudden, I guess he's not worth it. Well, you said she has no empathy either, right? She doesn't have a lot of empathy, but wait, you're going to learn the reason about okay. why she does it. Okay. The second doctor, Mad's family physician, had felt that it was because he had been treating Mads for a heart condition and it was likely to have contributed to the sudden death. Because Bell was the only witness and there was no evidence to support otherwise, the death was thought to have been caused by a cerebral hemorrhage and therefore was ruled a natural death. What a lucky little ducky. Yeah, once again, Belle was struck by tragedy. Her mourning was cushioned, though, by the fact that Mads had died on the one day where his new life insurance policy had been activated, while the old life insurance policy still <gasps> remained active. Get out! Yeah. <laughs> so he's double insured? Yep. And he dies on, on one <gasps> single day. Belle is a mastermind! <laughs> like, what the heck? This lady. Awesome. Yeah. So the one day that he's double insured, that's the day he dies. Oh, she is so calculated. She is smart. Like Super what a smart mastermind. Cookie dirt bag. That's right. <laughs> 
This allowed Bell to collect from both policies a payout of upwards of $5,000. So in today's currency, that's about $150,000. So there was an inquest ordered into Mad's death that was filed by Mad's relatives. So they were like, what's going on here? Right. This but was a little tricky. Would they have had toxicology and stuff then? Yeah, they could they tell did? arsenic and strychnine poisoning. Okay. This inquest was ordered because they felt that Bell had poisoned him. Mm-hmm. But I couldn't find any reports of what had happened with that inquest. And obviously... She got away with it. She got away with it. Yeah, because so she, nothing happened. Yeah, so I think that she might have put up a fuss and it just kind of got swept underneath the table. Yeah, and you can't harass this poor grieving widow. Well, and she and plays. Now she has all these kids and yes. no husband. Poor her, and she plays this part well. Oh yeah, yeah. With her newfound wealth, Belle relocated to Laporte, Indiana, with her three girls, Jenny, Myrtle, and Lucy. Laporte was a happening place at the time. It had stately buildings, fine schools, and recreational lakes. In the early 1900s, though, it was getting a reputation as a crime hub. Oh, so it was an interesting choice. But maybe that's what she could afford. It actually, where she chose to live, it plays a part or allows her to get away with more criminal activity. I was going to say she would blend in, yeah. right? If she's in a more upstanding community, then she's going to stand out. It's easier to hide her disappearances of men and oh, yeah. we'll discuss it later. But because the coroner was quite busy on the day of her second husband's death, it's not as looked into as maybe it would have been had it been the only death that occurred right. in that area. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. It was here that Belle started introducing herself as Belle instead of Bella. So again, she kind of creates this, she's moved to a new town. She's starting a new personality kind of thing. She bought a six bedroom house on McClung Road. The house had been built in 1846 and had its own sordid past. It had previously been owned by criminals and thugs. <laughs> Under the ownership of a different person, it was the location of a couple of mysterious deaths. And later, another owner would commit suicide in one of its upper bedrooms. Oh my. And the house, right before Belle purchased it, the property had been operating as a brothel. <laughs> of course it had been. Yeah, and classified as the region's classiest whorehouse. This is such an eventful story. Oh my god. <laughs> Well, it's just a little bit of deep digging, right? Yeah. Well, and Belle must have got a good price. That's like, right. Like all that stuff happening. She wasn't scared of crime and no, murder and that all. kind of stuff. Like that's just everyday happenings nope. for her. When Belle took over this place, the locals were happy that an upstanding, God-fearing citizen was going to turn around this property and make it respectable again. Wah, wah, wah. Exactly. <laughs> Until they find out what happens. While she's in the process of moving to her new home in Laporte, Belle visited some family in Minnesota. She became reacquainted with a recent widower, Peter Gunnis, also a Norwegian-born. Peter had been a boarder in her and Mad's home years earlier. He had been recently widowed when his wife died shortly after giving birth to their second daughter. Oh, Now, was there any reports that anything happened between the two of them while she was married to her first husband? I didn't find anything like that. Okay. No. I'm just expecting scandal at every turn. So from different historical records, the two looked like an odd match. Peter was described as a fine-looking blonde Viking of a man with clear blue Ooh. eyes and pointed yellow beard and mustache. A Viking of a man. A that paints of a, a picture. On the other hand, Belle was six feet tall and close to 300 pounds. She was described <laughs> as, as a, a Viking of a woman. As a Viking of a woman. Yeah. Maybe they were a better match than <laughs> Maybe. people thought. Um, she was described as a heavy featured woman with a big head covered by a mop of mud colored hair, small eyes, huge hands and arms, and a gross body supported by feet grotesquely small. <laughs> Poor Belle. Can you imagine being described that way? Well, it doesn't sound like she was viewed as very beautiful, but 
she got the men, so the men were into it. She must have had something going on. She shook what her mama gave her in just the right way. That's right. It's all about confidence. It's not apparent what attracted Peter more. Was it that Belle was a competent, attractive woman that held a certain seductive appeal? Or was it her 48-acre Indiana homestead? Oh, hmm, let's think about this. <laughs> it's hard to say because in that time, too, women were maybe, I don't know, in the early 1900s, were they more timid? She was just this, yeah. this force. I think so probably I it was that. more that he had two daughters that needed a mother. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Option C. Regardless of his reasons why, Peter agreed to accompany Belle to her farm, and on April 1st, 1902, the two were married. Five days after the wedding, Peter's infant daughter died of edema of the lungs oh. while in the sole care of Belle. But, like we discussed earlier, this was not uncommon for the time. It's true. But it's a lot of coincidences then. This infant's death wasn't seen as suspicious at all, even though the symptoms are actually similar to those of poisoning. And Peter's already grief-stricken. Interesting, though, that the baby's body was actually sent to be buried with Belle's two other children. Oh, so they why wouldn't it be buried with her birth mom? Yeah, I don't know. After the infant's death, not much is known about the Gunnis family until December of that same year. It can be assumed that in addition to their family responsibilities, that Peter, a butcher by trade, spent time raising hogs and teaching Belle how to properly butcher them to sustain their little farm that they were trying to establish. Oh no, this is where it starts, her butchering skills. On December 13th, tragedy struck again in Belle's life. According to Belle, while Peter was putting his shoes to warm by the fire, he knocked over a pot of boiling broth, and in the commotion, a meat grinder fell from an upper shelf and hit him on the back of the head. Belle woke her oldest daughter, Jenny, and told her to fetch help because Peter had burned himself. Jenny went running to the neighbor's house and quickly returned with the neighbor and his son around 3 a.m. in the morning. When the neighbor arrived, he found Peter face down in the parlor in a pool of blood in his nightclothes and a distraught Belle who could barely speak to explain what had happened. The doctor was sent for immediately, and when he arrived a short time later, it was determined that Peter had been dead for some time because rigor mortis had begun to set in. The physician, who was also the town coroner, made the observation that there were no signs of burns on Peter anywhere, but there was a large wound caked with blood on the back of his head and a broken nose. The coroner thought that the death was suspicious, but Belle was so distraught it was difficult to get a straight story about what had happened. An inquest was held on December 18th in 1902. Belle was composed during the inquest, but her answers often contradicted what others had observed at the scene and resulted in the doctor having more questions about what had transpired. But little Ginny takes the stand at the inquest and her testimony matched her mother so well that they thought, oh, this must have happened. It would be brought out later that Jenny had actually whispered to a schoolmate, though, my mama killed my papa. She hit him with a meat cleaver and he died. Don't tell a soul. Oh. Belle collected over $3,000 from Peter's life insurance policy. Girl. Mm-hmm. So how much is that today? 95000 okay. I mean, it's not her bank account has grown faster than mine. Yeah. It was reported that during the funeral, Belle cried through her hands loudly and dramatically, but was often caught peeking through her fingers to see who was watching her. So Peter's brother never believed that the death was accidental, and he feared for Peter's older daughter. Oh, right. Because she yeah, was still in... Still had- yeah, she was it's still in the care life. of Belle. And the reason that he was particularly fearful for her was that Peter had taken out a second life insurance policy where he named any of his biological children as beneficiaries. So this one child oh. was a beneficiary to an additional life insurance policy. Oh, yeah, that's putting a target right on her. 
In early 1903, he visited the Gunnis family under the pretense of checking on his niece, but he's actually smuggled her away in the middle of the night. Good for him. Yeah. Probably saved her life. She's actually the only child that survives Bill. So the townspeople were split. Some believed that she had been the victim of a tragedy and that bad luck just seemed to follow her around wherever she went. Others believed that she had killed Peter for the insurance money to help pay for the mortgage of the house. Oh, yeah. Totally. So this one I found interesting. In May 1903, just a few months after the inquest, a baby boy, Philip, joined the family. The infant's arrival was a surprise to everyone because Belle had said nothing about being pregnant during the inquest, even though it would have probably given her some sympathy. So she's claiming that this is Peter's son. That's right. The midwife who came to assist in the delivery was bewildered to find that the baby had already been born, bathed, and dressed when she <laughs> arrived after being notified by the young Jenny Gunnis that her mother had gotten a little baby boy. Yeah, she snatched that kid. Between 1903 and 1906, Belle continued to run her farm. When she needed help, she would place help wanted ads in the Norwegian language newspapers. Several men would reply to her ads, but would never stay very long. They were always taking off at inopportune times in the middle of the night, usually during harvest time, leaving Belle to rely on the help of sympathetic neighbors to help her complete her farm chores. Hmm. So it was kind of a recurring theme with her neighbors that she would come over and ask them for help during harvest time because her latest farmhand had somehow disappeared and just left her high and dry. I'm skeptical. Do they actually just leave high and dry or is she killing all hmm. these farmhands? We'll get to it. So reports from neighbors and occasional farmhands would say that Belle had many cousins that would come for short visits and then leave suddenly, usually without their belonging. In fact, <laughs> one farmhand that had worked on the Gunnis farm for an extended period of time, possibly because he was quite smitten with the now 16-year-old Jenny, would comment later that Belle had a whole room full of trunks that her cousins had left behind. <laughs> Oh, yeah, I bet you did, Belle. This same young farmhand was devastated in the winter of 1906 when Jenny informed him that she would be going away to attend a finishing school in California. He left the farm shortly after that, heartbroken that Jenny had left earlier than he expected without saying goodbye. Oh, well, that probably saved his life. In 1907, Belle was in need of some serious help around the farm and someone that would be a little bit of a steadier contributor. Bell hired Ray Lampfear, a 37-year-old local with a shady reputation who had a weakness for alcohol and gambling, but when he was sober, he was actually a pretty skilled carpenter and was quite useful around the farm. While Bell never considered Ray as a possible suitor because he was too poor, she didn't have any problem having sex with him. Of course she didn't. She used <laughs> Belle him. takes what she wants. That's right. She used him how she wanted. The townspeople would say that they were very friendly with one another, and Ray would often boast in the bars that he would be the next master of the Gunnis farm. Oh, yeah. So he's probably wanting all this property, especially oh, yeah. if he's poor. He's thinking, yeah, meal ticket. While Ray thought that he had a special place in Belle's heart, there were actually other farmhands that would also report that Belle slept with them on several occasions. One ex-employee actually described in detail his experience with Belle in bed, saying that she purred like a cat, and I never saw a woman such as that. She knew how to keep them, that's for sure. Yeah. So it goes all back to that appeal and that black widow of, like, she knows how to reel them in and keep them happy and oh, doing definitely. whatever she wants them to do. There was one particular suitor that Belle did fail to seduce. George Anderson had come to discuss a marriage proposal. When Belle had pushed the issue of paying off her mortgage, Anderson said that he would like to sleep on it. During the night at the farm, while he stayed in the guest bedroom, he woke to find Belle standing over him with a candle and a strange, sinister expression on her face. When she saw that he had woken up, she ran from the room. What? Andrew was so shaken by this occurrence that he fled from the house, leaving all of his belongings behind him, <laughs> taking the next train to Missouri. <laughs> 
he would be one of the few suitors that actually spent the night at the farm and lived to tell the tale. Oh my gosh. See, morals pay off, everybody. (laughs) (laughs) Had he went for the goods, he would have been dead. That's right. He ran. Yeah. So you see, Belle hadn't just been advertising for help in the Norwegian papers. She'd also been posting several ads in the matrimonial columns of the daily Chicago newspapers. Oh, and that's what drug him there with a marriage proposal. That's right. In her ads, it reads, A comely widow who owns a large farm in one of the finest districts of Laporte County, Indiana, desires to make acquaintance of a gentleman equally well provided for. With view of joining fortunes, no replies by letter considered unless the sender is willing to follow answer with a personal visit. Triflers need not apply. Hmm. So that's what she posted. Okay. Like one of her ads. She actually yeah. had several. It's a decent ad, to yeah. be honest. You know, she tells exactly what she wants. Yeah. Right? She's saying, I have a fortune. If you have a fortune too, let's meet up and join. And her ads worked because her mail carrier revealed that she would receive as many as eight, ten letters a day from suitors. Whoa. Yeah. Her neighbors watched as many men came knocking. Belle would often be seen going for carriage rides with strangers on Sunday afternoons. Belle would wear her finest clothing and her hair was adorned in the latest style, usually accompanied by a handsome man. Most locals wouldn't even recognize Belle from the rough farm woman that they were used to seeing dressed like a man and slinging hogs around. Yeah. So she cleaned up pretty nice. Some suitors she would correspond with for short periods of time and others much longer. One of these longer correspondents was with Andrew Helgeline. The two would write back and forth for almost 18 months, and Belle had sent him over 80 letters. Andrew was a little bit more leery than the other men that she had extended invitations to to join her. He was a criminal himself and had spent 10 years in Minnesota Correctional Facility for robbery and arson. That sounds like a match made in heaven. The last letter written to him by Belle must have been the one that finally convinced him to come to Belle's farm. It had said this, Think how we will enjoy each other's company. You, the sweetest man in the whole world. We will be alone with each other. Can you conceive of anything nicer? I think of you constantly. When I hear your name mentioned, and it is this when the dear children speak of you, I hear myself humming with the words of an old love song. It is beautiful music to my ears. My heart beats with wild rapture for you. My Andrew, I love you. Come prepared to stay forever. You must remember that you will get a meeting that comes from the heart. And according to the book Hell's Princess, Gunnis also wrote, This is a secret between us and no one else. Probably we will have many secrets between us. She has got away with words. It's like 1900 sexting. <laughs> it really is. Imagine us alone together. Scandalous. Oh, that's how she lures them in, though. Yeah. Just to get their minds to go there. Yeah. Where a proper woman wouldn't do that. Well, it kind of sets it up. If they're already kind of thinking that way, and then she appears in their bedroom late at night... Oh, yeah. The chloroform rag. <laughs> they're expecting something else. What she was imagining was very different than what they're imagining. With Andrew's arrival into Belle's life, Ray becomes upset, feeling misplaced by the newcomer. And literally, he was, like, replaced. When Andrew arrives at the Gunnis farm, Belle told Ray to move his things out of the house and into the barn so that Andrew could have his bedroom. Oh, I'm sure he didn't like that. Oh, he was some ticked off. Because he had his own agenda. He wanted her farm. He thought he was her love. 
Just days after Andrew's arrival in early January 1908, he and Bell went to the bank together and they tried to redeem a certified deposit check that he had brought with him, his life savings of $2,839. So that's about 75000 today. And so what, she's wanting this put in her account and yeah. he's wanting to do Well, this? she doesn't want it in her account. She wants cash. Oh. Cash, baby. Just cash. The bank is unable to just cash this hefty sum right away. They don't have yeah. that much cash on hand. So they tell her like, oh, you got to give us a few days. When the couple return for the cash several days later, the bank teller recounts that he tried to tell them, you should take this in cashier's checks. Like, it doesn't make any sense to have this much cash laying around. It's dangerous. But Belle refuses, wanting to take the whole amount in cash, half in gold coins and half in currency. Oh, yeah, of course. When asked what they're planning to do with all the money, Belle gets a little harsh and tells the teller to mind his own business. On January 14th, Bell arranges for Ray to leave the house, or his barn, because he's not in the house anymore, on a horse trading deal, and that was the last time that anybody ever saw Andrew. So Ray was the last person to see Andrew? Mm -hmm. Okay. On February 3rd, 1908, Bell abruptly fires Ray, and the reason that she fired him is unknown at that time. Some speculate that it was a fight over unpaid wages. Others say that it was because of his jealous attitude and frequent outburst that they had just grown too much in the work environment because he was quite upset that Andrew was present in Belle's life right now. Oh, I'm sure. He totally got kicked to the curb. Yeah. Ray had been becoming more and more vocal about his employer in the taverns. He would go back and forth between saying that Belle was the love of his life or he would start alluding to her being like this horrible human being. Like he wouldn't come right out and say that she had done awful things, but he was kind of hinting at it. Right. So he's basically signing his own death certificate. The real reason Belle fired Ray wouldn't be known until Ray's deathbed. So, so after, she doesn't kill she Ray? She doesn't kill Ray. She takes care of him in other ways. Okay. So after the falling out between the former lovers, Belle goes to the police and says that her former employee is not in his right mind. She somehow convinces the local authorities to hold a sanity hearing for Ray. <laughs> She's got so much power. The doctors actually pronounce Ray as sane and they release him. They don't believe that he's actually insane. That doesn't stop Belle, though. Belle goes back to the sheriff's office a few days later and complains that Ray has visited her farm and argued with her and contends that he poses a threat to her family and the sheriff believes Belle's stories and had Ray arrested for trespassing. And this happens on three different occasions. Ray, take a hint. In a short period of time. But Ray keeps going to the property. I know. That's what I mean. Take a hint, Ray. Yeah. Get out of here. Cut your losses and go. So Ray's forced to stand trial all three times that she charges him with trespassing. And there's like court dockets that go through his trial. And the first time he had to pay a dollar for trespassing on her land, which again, she gets the money. During the second trial, Ray's defense attorney puts Belle on the stand and starts to lay out Belle's past deeds and how suspicious she has been, even prodding into both of her husband's deaths and the insurance that she's collected in the past. When she gets down from the stand, it's reported that Belle was visibly shaken. Oh, I bet. It's probably the so first time like, someone's called her on it. Yeah. But Ray is convicted of trespassing and again has to pay the fine. During the third trial to face trespassing charges, Ray is able to produce some witnesses to prove that he wasn't even on the Gunnis farm when Bell claims he was. And this time, Bell actually ends up having to pay the court costs. Ooh. Ooh plot twist. That's right. I'm sure she didn't like that. Yeah. And he survives. Well, wait. She's not done with him yet, though. At the same time that Belle was trying to get Ray declared insane or put in jail, she was also having to deal with Els Helgeline. He was concerned that his brother had not been seen or heard from. 
When Andrew left from home, he hadn't completely followed Belle's instructions to tell no one. He had told his brother that he would be away for about a week. Mm. And so his brother expected him back. And when he didn't return, he got a little bit worried. Yeah, always tell someone when you're going out yeah. of town. When he went to Andrew's house to investigate, Alice found numerous letters from Belle, and he surmised that his brother had gone to see her in Laporte. Through several correspondence, Alice questions Belle on Andrew's whereabouts. Belle tells Alice that Andrew had come for a visit, but had since left to look for his brother, who was a known gambler of the family, and that she had received one letter from him saying that he was unsuccessful in his search in Chicago and was now moving on to New York to look for him. Hmm, she had a story ready. Els doesn't buy Belle's explanation, and he told her that he planned to come out and investigate his brother's disappearance starting in Laporte. She called his bluff and told him to come on up, that she would even help for a fee. Oh, Belle! I'll help you find your brother, but it'll cost you. So in the last week of April, 1908, store clerks reported that Belle looked distressed when she was shopping, telling everyone who would listen that she feared Ray would harm her and burn her house down. A teacher would later report that on the Monday morning of April 27th, Belle's two girls were very upset when they arrived at school and reported that they had been beaten by Belle when they attempted to play in the cellar, an area that was always forbidden. Oh no. Yeah. What's in the cellar? On that same day, Belle told a lawyer in Laporte that she feared for her life and that of her children, that it was imperative that she have a will done that day. She left her entire estate to her children, Myrtle, Lucy, and Philip. Interestingly, Jenny is not on the list. What? And added a provision that should her children die, that her whole fortune, approximately $15,000, would go to an orphanage, the Norwegian Children's Home of Chicago. Wait, Jenny's not on the list, and her fortune is only $15,000? Where'd all her money go? $15,000 in 1908 would be approximately $445,000 Oh, that's a big amount. Yeah. But then why is Jenny left out of that? You're going to find out. After she was done at the lawyer, she went to the bank that was holding the mortgage for her property and paid it off completely and withdrew all of her money except for $740. What is she doing? Her last stop that day was to purchase cakes and a toy train for the children and two gallons of kerosene. <laughs> She's burning the house down. According to the new farmhand, so Joe Maxson had replaced Ray, the family spent the evening eating a large, elaborate meal, and then Belle spent the evening playing with the children with her new toy train. He would later report that he had become very tired after supper and retired early to bed before Belle and her children. In the morning hours of April 28th, Joe Maxim was awakened by the smell of smoke, and I thought it was funny that he reports that he actually thought that it was just Belle burning breakfast. <laughs> Must have nope. been a regular occurrence. <laughs> yeah, that's some burnt breakfast. <laughs> The house was engulfed in flames. He tried to alert the Gunnis family, but he received no answer. He then jumped from the window in his underwear to escape himself. He and a neighbor who had seen the flames and had come to help broke back into the house to get to the bedrooms. But when they reached the bedrooms, they found that the beds were actually empty. What? It wasn't until the next morning when the flames had died down and the house lay in a collapsed heap of ruins that the charred remains of the three children were found wrapped together in the basement cellar along with a headless corpse of Belgunis. Immediate suspicions went to Ray because she's painted this whole picture around town that right. she's terrified of him. But if anything and, happens to me, it's going to be Ray. So immediately, the sheriff jumps on Ray, and he didn't do much for his own case. 
Even before he was told about the fire, he asked, did Widow Gunnis and the kids make it out all right? He would later try to explain the comment by saying that he had seen the flames in a distance on his way to work, but hadn't alerted anyone because it wasn't any of his business. Hmm, possible. And Ray actually has an alibi that would come out later in his trial that he had spent the night with Elizabeth Smith, an African-American woman in her 70s with physical deficiencies. Oh, he was there to, like, help her or was involved with her? No, he was involved with her. Okay. How old is he? He was 37. Oh. He didn't originally share this alibi, so he wasn't forthcoming about this alibi. Right. Because he thought it would be damaging to his reputation. Or damaging to her reputation. (laughs) (laughs) But even with his alibi, the sheriff still doesn't believe that he didn't commit the murders because of all the things that Belle has been telling him. Oh, she has set him up for this. When the remains of the dead were pulled from the house, it was noted by some, and later confirmed by autopsy, that the headless female body was smaller in stature than that of Belgunis. The corpse found in the cellar was approximately 5 feet 3 inches tall, when making allowances for the missing head, and approximately 150 pounds, which was much lighter than Bell. Oh, yeah. Lethal doses of strychnine were also found in the corpse's stomach. Well, right there, they should know that it's not her. Yeah. You don't shrink half your size just because your head gets chopped off. She was actually also missing her feet and hands and arms. I don't know why it would burn off your whole limbs. But if you remember back to Belle's description about how she had those big hands and uncharacteristically grotesque feet, wondering were those identifying characteristics that if oh, Belle probably. was going to plant a body there, was that she's like, oh, I don't want you know these big feet to give me away right so maybe she put kerosene on them to burn them or chop them off my guess is she chopped them off but wouldn't they be able to tell they could tell that they were chopped then and they just are assuming they're burned or did she burn the edges well she did light her on fire after or like the bodies were burned Belle is terrible. She is just, yeah, doesn't matter who's left in her weight. And wait, we're going to see the condition of some of the other bones, and then it might explain why they couldn't tell whether these limbs were cut off or whether they had just been burned. Okay. So the sheriff appointed diggers to shift through the debris to find the missing woman's head and any other evidence that they could find to prove that this was Belle's body. Oh, it's not going to be there. Belle got rid of it. Joe Maxson was one of the diggers, and he was soon joined by Els, who had come looking for his brother. So he actually did arrive in the port, but it was after the fire had occurred. Okay. So he shows up at the farm, and he starts digging too, because he wants to find where his brother is. Oh, yeah. After two days, Els gives up, though. According to the Hell's Princess book, he told the men goodbye and started to walk down the road until a creeping sense of doubt compelled him to stop and turn around, saying that I'm not satisfied. He returned and went back to the cellar and asked Joe whether he knew of any hole or dirt that had been dug up around the place in the spring. Because that's when his brother went missing. That's when Joe told him about the rubbish holes that he had been asked to level by Bell. Al started digging in the rubbish holes in hopes that he would find a clue to his brother's whereabouts. So he's digging in these rubbish holes thinking that he's going to go through the garbage and find something that would link him to his brother. Inside a gunny sack that was oozing and soft when the shovel hit it were two hands, two feet, and a head. <gasps> Even though the face was withered, Al's recognized his brother right away, and it was clear from the defensive wounds on his forearms and the handful of soft brown curly hair that he had fought back. 
he had Belle's hair in his hand, in the severed hand. Yep. That's freaky. What a sight. I can't even imagine. Yeah. And what is so, that's her thing, cutting off their head and their hands and feet. Andrew's stomach oh. contents on autopsy would reveal that he had large quantities of strychnine and arsenic. Jig is up, Belle. Digging in the pig pen would officially begin on May 3rd of 1908. On the first day, they found five bodies, two of them unidentified children. <gasps> on the second day, three more bodies were found. And then on the third, 11. Whoa. It would be until day six of the digging that the digging crew would go a full day without finding new body parts. According to the Chicago paper, the bones had been crushed on the ends as though they had been struck with hammers after they had been dismembered. Quick lime had been scattered over the faces and stuffed in the ear. Most of the skulls were scarred with giant gashes that showed signs of blunt trauma. Some of the bodies, those still intact at least, contained traces of strychnine, commonly used in rat poison. Many of the remains had been quartered like hogs, doused in quicklime to speed up the decomposition and buried in piles under men's shoes. So she butchered them just like Peter had taught her to do just like the hogs. Because of the butchering and the scattering of remains, most of the remains could not be properly identified. But it was very apparent that there were a lot, and that what had started as a fire and a possible homicide investigation had blown into a full-scale serial murder investigation. How shocking. And With such a small percentage as women, they would never have dreamt that this is what they would find. Never. With 14 victims being able to be identified and as many as 40 in total, the investigators and the public were in a frenzy. That's crazy. So Andrew was the first to be found, but there are many others that followed him. And one of the most shocking ones that was found was actually Ginny, who she had promised the dying woman to guard with her life and take care of always. Oh, oh my gosh. So she didn't really go to finishing school. Nope. She didn't go to Belle school. Belle probably was like jealous that she was getting all this attention and was like, hey, you're becoming a problem. And at 16, when your mother is having all these men's traits in and they never leave, you would start to get suspicious. Oh. And so it sounds like she had just kind of timed out. She had gotten too smart and Belle had to take care of her. Or that was speculation. That's so terrible. I don't know. How do you care for somebody for that long? And then just so cold-heartedly butcher them. And she was given no special treatment whatsoever. She was butchered like the rest, put in a gunny sack, had the quick lime over her, and just thrown out with the trash. Dirt bag. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Okay, that took me by surprise. Well, I was curious why there was no insurance policy left to her. Well, it shows you that Belle knew she was dead, right? It wasn't anybody else that did it. Oh, of course not. Yeah. So there were numerous other body parts that would never officially be identified. And there were many men's personal effects found in the gunner's home that could be linked to missing persons that had reportedly told family members that they were heading to work or marry a widow in Indiana. Watches, clothes, trunks, and even horses and buggies were found belonging to men that had visited the farm but never returned to their families. With the pig pen being dug up day and night and the mass of remains being found and the impending trial, the little town had become a circus. People camped out all over. Reporters described Bell's home as a horror farm or the death garden and reported the grisly happening. And this is during the time that tabloid journalism was just starting. So each publisher was in the fastest race to get the most readers and they were putting out stuff and pictures that were completely sensationalizing all of this that was going on. These details attracted gawkers who came in droves. Some estimates say that 20,000 people gathered at the farm in one weekend. Vendors reportedly sold ice cream, popcorn, cake, and something called gunnus stew. Ooh, I would not be eating the gunnus stew. But... No. <laughs> but what a spectacle. And it's that's interesting because tabloids are just new. Like, it's not like the internet. You know, how quickly that would draw crowds. No. So it's amazing that they would get that kind of a crowd back Pe in that day. Yeah. 
This is incredible. And even today, the murder farm, where there were so many victims killed, dismembered, and buried, is reputed to be haunted and has become a destination for murder tourism. So I didn't even oh, know murder tourism was a thing. But oh, yeah. it's a total thing. Yeah. And it's kind of, my brain just went to how they talked about how her and her family were part of a circus. Yeah. <laughs> and like, and now she really in is. a circus. Like, yep. of all these people selling popcorn. And... While the digging continued and the circus was going on at the farm, insight was gained about how Belle had been able to lure so many victims to her house through her incoming mail. Letters were still being delivered to her home by suitors that were making arrangements to come and visit her. All these poor men. Well, luckily they didn't, they missed their opportunity. I know, but all of the men, I'm just thinking, you know, she's gotten all these letters and she just was reeling them in and chucking them out. The big question remained though, who was responsible for murdering Belle? Belle's not dead. That's what we think now. But at the time, this sheriff is totally stuck on, no, this is Belle in the cellar and Ray has murdered her. Ray Lampere was arrested on May 22nd, 1908 and tried for murder and arson. No. Yeah. He denied the charges that were filed against him despite repeated sweatings, which I'm yeah. assuming are, are the police not treating him very nicely. Please and tell me he got off. No, she gets him in the end. His defense hinged on the assertion, though, that the body was not Bell Gunnis's. To prove that he was innocent, what his legal team tried to do was disprove that that body in the cellar was Bell. Yeah. And yeah. they weren't able to do that? No. The persecution had the burden of proving that the body was, in fact, Bell's and that Ray had murdered and set fire to her house. So the investigators worked endlessly, sifting through the debris of the fire and the dirt in and around the farm, looking for clues. One of the main things that they were looking for was the dental implants that were made of gold and porcelain that Bell's dentist said he could use to identify Bell's body for sure. It was thought that the dental bridge work would have survived the fire and that because the only way to remove it would be to rip out one of her own teeth, that if Bell had truly died in the fire, it would be found there. But there was no head. A gold <laughs> prospector in town said that if they built him a sluicing box, that he would be able to find the gold bridge. So they actually sent a, like set up a gold sluicing box in the middle of this big it is a circus. crowd, like this great big circus. Crowds gathered to watch him day in and day out as he worked his sluicing box. Panning for teeth. Ray's lawyer made a prediction in the media that he was confident that the teeth would be found because it was the only way the prosecutors will win this case. And lo and behold, that's what they found. Among belt buckles and watches that were found, a scuffed up bridge of teeth were found in the debris and identified to be Bell's by her dentist. There were a few unusual things about the dental implants, though. They didn't seem to have been marked as extensively by the fire as one would expect. The claim was that the fire had been so hot that Bell's feet, hands, and head had been consumed in the flames, yet the porcelain and the gold work were unscathed. Oh yeah, they were just thrown in there after. And there were even claims by some that they had seen the bridge planted in the rubble by the miner who was sluicing for it. Despite these incongruencies, the coroner makes the official ruling that the body is in fact that of Bell Gunness. Oh. So in November 1908, the trial for Ray begins and his defense is still that the body's not Bell's. It's not. (laughs) When Ray first learned that the bodies were found on the farm, he made the comment to the sheriff that, I knew the woman was bad, but nothing like this. There were things I noticed. I guess it was more serious than I thought. 
He told them of suspicions that he had had about the men that would disappear and being asked to buy lots of particular types of rat poison. He emphatically denied any knowledge of the murders, but it was clear from the testimony during his trial that he might have not been exactly true to his claim. It seems he knew a little more about the happenings at the Gunnis farm than he let on. I like to see. During the trial, a chemist would testify that each of the children in the fire had traces of strychnine in their stomachs, and this seemed to be what convinced the jurors that Belle and not Ray had murdered the three children because her M.O. was poisoning. Ray was found guilty of arson, but acquitted of murder. So they thought he set the oh. fire, but he didn't kill them. Including Belle. Including Belle. Yeah. So on November 26, 1908, he was sentenced to 20 years in state prison in Michigan City. And he actually died of tuberculosis December 30th, 1909. So just a little bit over a year later, he actually died. Aw, so he had to spend his last days in jail. Yeah. In The Truth About Bell Gunnis, Ray's insights and confessions to his cellmates and a reverend are captured. Shortly before his death, he claimed that he had not murdered anyone, but he had helped Gunnis bury many of her victims. When a victim arrived, she made him comfortable, charming him and cooking a large meal. She then drugged his coffee, and when the man was in a stupor, she split his head with a meat chopper. Sometimes, she would simply wait for the suitor to go to bed and then enter the bedroom by candlelight and <gasps> chloroform the victim oh, sleeping. So that was what was going to happen to that guy in the spare room. A powerful woman, Gunnis would then carry the body to the basement, place it on the table, and dissect it. She then bundled the remains and buried these in the hog pen and the grounds about the house. To save time, she sometimes poisoned her victim's coffee with strychnine. She also varied her disposal methods, sometimes dumping the corpse into a hog-scalding vat and covering the remains with quicklime. Lamphere even stated that if Belle was overly tired about murdering one of her victims, she merely chopped up the remains and in the middle of the night stepped into her hog pen and fed the remains to her hogs. She is, like, right out of a horror movie. The handyman also cleared up the mysterious question of the headless female corpse found in the smoking ruins of the Gunnis home. Gunnis had lured this woman from Chicago on the pretense of hiring her as a housekeeper, only days before she decided to make her permanent escape from a port. Gunnis, according to Lamphere, had drugged the woman, then bashed her head and decapitated the body, taking the head, which had weights tied to it, to a swamp where she threw it into the deep water. Then she chloroformed her children, smothered them to death, and dragged their small bodies along with the headless corpse to the basement. She dressed the female corpse in her old clothing and removed her false teeth, placing them beside the headless corpse to assure it being identified as Belle Gunnis. Hmm. So this is the one where I was like, maybe this doesn't quite add up. And maybe Ray's just telling a story. Well, because even with the children, because their cause of death was poisoning, not smothering. This is what he's saying happened. But this is a deathbed confession. This is a deathbed confession. Yeah. But it's also a deathbed confession from other people that heard it from Ray. Okay. And the other one is that, what about this teeth? Because it's, the teeth seem so suspicious. And yet he's saying that that was part of her. Yeah, she did actually pull out her own teeth. And so maybe the teeth they found were hers, but. But he had to pan for days to find those teeth. Mm -hmm. They weren't just like right next to the body where they'd be easy to find. No, they weren't. It does sound a little bit suspicious, it right? It does. This quote goes on to say that she then torched the house and fled. Lamphere had helped her, he admitted, but she had not left by the road where he waited for her. She had betrayed her one-time partner in crime in the end by cutting across open fields and then disappearing into the woods. And some accounts would actually suggest that Lamphere had actually admitted to taking her to the next town over. He thought they were going to run off together. Yeah. 
So he's not as innocent as I was hoping. No. Lamphere said that Gunnis was a rich woman and that she murdered 42 men by his count, perhaps more, and had taken amounts ranging from $1,000 to $32,000. She had allegedly accumulated more than 250000 in her murdering schemes over the years. So that works out to be about $7.5 million today. Holy cow! Yeah. The fact that Gunnis withdrew most of her money suggests that she was planning to evade the law. And maybe she paid everything up so there would be no loose ends. Nobody's going to come looking for me, right? Yeah. I look dead. Yeah, I yeah. don't owe any money. Before his death, Ray said that his falling out with Belle had occurred because he had witnessed the murder of Andrew and had demanded hush money from Gunnis, and she fired him instead. I'm so shocked still that she didn't just kill him. I know. It was so easy for her. So I'm not sure I would have been brave enough to demand anything from Belle. No. Especially after seeing her just murder somebody, right? Yeah. For several decades following the findings of the murder farm, the fate of Belle Gunnis was largely debated. So even though the jury said that they believed that it was her and that she was dead, they didn't think that he did it, but that it was her. The public really thought that she was still alive. There are numerous reported sightings from her from San Francisco to New York, and there was even one in Alberta. Really? Yeah. She made it to Canada. She made it to Canada. But I wonder, wherever she moved, I assume she would have just kept on with the same kind of carnage. Like, is there all these unsolved cases in different places of missing people that she's actually responsible for and we just don't know it? Well... There was one woman in 1931, a woman known by Esther Carlson, who was arrested for poisoning a man for his money, the M.O. that matched Bell's perfectly. She was of similar age, and it was claimed that she looked very much like an aged Bell Gunnis. Yeah, because she yeah. doesn't just blend in. No. In a room where Esther was staying, there were photos that looked very much like the Gunnis children. Hmm. It was the best lead that people had had in years, and it really did appear for a while that this was Belle. But Esther would die in prison before her trial and before her identity was officially established. So in 2007, DNA tests were attempted to confirm that the body buried in Belle Gunnis's grave was actually hers, and they took some DNA from a letter that had been kept in evidence that she had sent one of her her lovers. So they thought, like, on the seal part that they would be able right. to extract enough DNA. And actually, they weren't. Oh. They couldn't do anything with it. In 2014, there were reports made that Esther Carlson was, in fact, a different person than Belle Gunnis based on the fact that they could put two of them in separate locations at the same time. So there was documented history of them both being in different places or different towns right. during the same time period. So based on that, they're saying that, no, it actually wasn't the Sister Carlson person. Right. And I wonder what her dental records were like. Is she at a bridge in the same spot or not? Who knows? Never investigated. But once again, the fate of Belle was a mystery. So in 1931 till more recently, everybody had kind of chalked it up to it being this Esther Carlson person until 2014. Oh, just recent. Yeah. Until it was disproven. And so once again, the fate of Belle was a mystery and remains that way today. Left for us to speculate on. No, I think she's totally, well, she's probably not alive anymore, but she totally yeah. got away. And so that's our story of Hell's Bell. Go to our Facebook page or Instagram and tell us what you think became of her. Did she perish in the fire, just like the jury believed? Or did she escape to kill again? We want to know your opinion. Yeah, let us know. That was one hell of a ride. <laughs> Thanks for all those that keep listening. And if you're enjoying spending time with us as we dig deep into these dirt bags, tell a friend and give us a review. Yeah, we'd super appreciate it. We'll be back next week where I'll have another story for you. So until then, have a great week. See ya. Bye.
Why is it so hard at the beginning? I don't know, but it gives us lots of bloopers for the end. <laughs> right after you. Oh my goodness. <laughs> A good. What? <laughs> after the infant's death. I can't laugh when I say infant's death. <laughs> On December 13th, strategy, strategy struck. <laughs> don't laugh. This is what really happened. It did? Are you? I don't believe anything that Belle says. <laughs> it's the hoorah house. <laughs> What is it actually again? Whore. Whorehouse. Not whore. Oh. oh. Holy crap. <laughs> Ramsey. Oh. Both. Both. The answer is always both. Both. Yeah. You want chips or chocolate? Both. both. You realize you just made a hand gesture and they can't see that. <laughs> Hey, we're live, pal, and we'd love for you to come check out our podcast, Tales from the Estate. Each week, we talk about our top five favorite somethings. My beautiful wife, Caitlin, likes to share all sorts of random facts. Yeah. Did you know that cows have accents? We did now. But we also review all sorts of snacks and other great things. And so if you love everything random, I think you'd enjoy Tales from the Estate. So come check us out. Yeah. Okay, thanks. Bye. Jeff Woods and I'm shining a light on music and the rock stars who make it. He just was one of those people. He, he stood out. He was a magic guy. He really was a magic guy. All, we all have force. He had the same amount of force as we all have. This was before Led Zeppelin. Robert was full on. I mean, he was Led Zeppelin without the band behind him. He had the hair, the jeans, the whole thing, you know. And he was amazing. The Records and Rockstars podcast heard around the world and yours to hear wherever you get podcasts. All the episodes from JeffWoodsRadio.com. Another Sound Off Media Company podcast.